From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch broadcasting this week from New York City. It's Christmas weekend and it's also the final days of Hanukkah. So please let me wish you a very happy holidays, whatever it is that you are celebrating. A lot has happened in the past 12 months. It's been our tradition since the early days of this show to take some time to look back at some of the biggest stories in religion news at the end of each year. And we also want to explore the way these stories impacted our culture and our nation across all lines of faith and belief. And we've been lucky to do that each year with top journalists from Religion News Service, a nonprofit, nonpartisan, nonsectarian resource that's been an invaluable news source for almost a hundred years. For a look back at the very newsy 2022, I'll be talking with two award-winning RNS experts, national reporter and author Jack Jenkins, and production editor and national reporter Adele M. Banks. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on Apple Podcasts and all other podcast platforms. Every week, I will be in conversation with some of the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the nation. You won't want to miss it, so please subscribe today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you have made a donation, I really want to thank you. And if you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my guests, longtime religion journalists Adele Banks and Jack Jenkins. Welcome to State of Belief Radio. Thanks so much for having us. Well, let me start by saying I am long-standing fanboy of both of your work. You so often report stories that I didn't even know I was going to be interested in, and then you're there and you're you're telling the story, and it's just an incredible um, service storytelling that you do uh, for our nation, and you're both just. So excellent. So thank you for joining me on this kind of end of year looking back and maybe a little looking forward. So you come with all this experience. You've done this before. And I just want to dive right in. Um, Adele, I'm going to start with you. What strikes you from this year? What are some stories that you've reported on this year that really like stood out to you as as really like kind of seminal moments in um in the past, uh, in 2022? Um, well, I guess the first two that come to mind are Roe v. Wade and um, some of the denominational uh, differences and strife and challenges that are continuing to happen in our country. Um, uh, as far as Roe v. Wade goes, uh, there's just this big religion divide and national divide over what should be done about abortion. And now it's like there's a whole nother juncture of what that's going to mean for everyone, uh, but especially religious leaders, since that's who we cover, and how they might either help women who are now in a completely different situation, depending on what state they're in, um, and what they might do that is within the law or maybe not. When when that story hit, what was the first, just from the religious perspective, like what was the way you went into that story? Because like there's, you know, if you were a legal reporter or if you were, you know, a political reporter, but as a religion reporter, what struck you about that story that really like um, kind of went to the gut? Um, I think uh, when I tried to find out how African-American churches in particular were going to respond to this, um, I was really struck by the differences and the similarities. And the the similarity was really wanting to care about women, uh, but in different ways. So the people who were more uh, progressive were concerned about the basics of health care um, for women who might not be able to go to a clinic that not only might have provided abortions, but re- provided just general reproductive health care. Um, so there was like, hey, how are we going to fill in that gap? And then there were people who were very much against abortion who are like, well, how can we serve women who are going to have 
pregnancies that are unexpected and who, and these are folks that want them to have the children no matter what. And some of them are looking into things like um, new kinds of homes for unwed mothers, if that's still a term. So, and I wonder what's going to still come of it. And it's really something I should circle back on and see. So what's it look like now? Right, right. Well, it's, I mean, it is very much, you know, in the tradition of the black church, like what are the, like, what does this mean for our people? And, you know, taking different positions, but really going straight to the lives of the people in the pews or around in the community and saying, well, in different ways, this is going to affect the people who we're here to care about and serve. So that is, you know, that is really interesting. Jack, I think you probably covered this as well. One of the things that's coming up for us is like the religious freedom angle. This is us at Interfaith Alliance. It's like there's – you. I don't know if either of you have reported on the – on you know these the the new challenges to the law that are coming mm-hmm. out of some traditions, notably Jewish traditions, they're saying actually my religious tradition not only um, allows it but sometimes mandates abortion. And so you know what what are our recourses? Did either of you touch on that in your reporting? I did. Um, you know, one of the things I found fascinating is in the lead up to the final decision, both the um, when the after the leaked report. Uh, um, of the decision and the decision itself, you know, I went down to the Supreme Court and there were you know, rallies from abortion rights supporters uh, at, in those instances. Um, and in both instances, either the first, second or third person to speak was actually a faith leader who supports abortion rights. And the visibility of that, of those groups who have been around arguably since the beginning of the abortion rights movement um, is clearly been enhanced over the last year. There was also a separate um, uh, protests organized by the National Council of Jewish Women out on the Capitol lawn that, you know, it was the, it was a sizable protest. Like it was somewhere either in high hundreds or in the thousands. I'm not going to try to pretend to have counted every single person there. But the passion that the participants had you know, when, the, um, when it came to viewing this as a religious freedom issue, right? Yeah. Now, to that point, you know, we now have, as you, as you noted, there are now multiple lawsuits filed in various states, um, you know, kind of uh, pushing back on some of these abortion restrictions that are passed at the state level, saying that they infringe on um, the, the the various different faiths and their um, beliefs about abortion, uh, and 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 Jewish leaders are among the more prominent leaders of this movement. There's a little bit of division about like which is the best kind of lawsuit to file in that context. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. But the uh, but I think it's been fascinating to kind of see you know these Jewish leaders. Um, you know, talking across, uh, you know, theological difference to often conservative Christians sometimes at these events saying, no, like I, you know, our tradition, you know, these Jewish leaders are saying our tradition has claimed this position for, you know, thousands of years. Um, and this isn't a new, you know, in, influence by progressivism, what have you. And to see kind of that dialogue happening in a way that it hasn't happened in the last um, few decades has been really fascinating to watch. And it's curious to see what that dialogue will look like when judges start weighing in on it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I, it is not surprising that we started with Dobbs, given the moral implication and also the social implication in the way that, um, you know, religious organizations since pre Roe v. Wade have been, you know, in the mix of, um, of abortion rights and opposing abortion. So like, this is a, this is an ongoing conversation. It is, um, you know, it's, it, it, I I think it's worth noting that the actual uh, percentages within religious traditions who, you know, adherents, I'll say, not necessarily leaders, but adherents is, is you know, I, I won't say overwhelming, but pretty strongly pro some kind of abortion rights. Uh, that's the but but um, but that is not necessarily. You know, that, that I think can be more of a practicality in some ways rather than, and we saw that actually, like, you know, this is a, I think an addendum story, but what happened in the referendums that happened in the midterms? Oh, yeah. After, you know, you saw in very conservative states, um, pretty resounding support of abortion rights, uh, or at least, you know, at least some, rights to abortion. I think that, you know, there was, there was, there was, wasn't one case where it didn't pass. So, so I think that that was, you know, clearly perhaps the biggest uh, story of the year. Um, 
But but you know I'm open to I'm open to debate. Uh, what would you lead with, Jack? If you were to say what you know, what was the story that really, when you look back at 22, really strikes you? I mean, I I, I will admit it probably be Roe because it seems to touch so many other stories. If that makes any sense, right? So for me. Yeah. Um, a second one would kind of be this narrative around Christian nationalism leading into the midterm elections, right? This uh-huh. shift from a dialogue around Christian nationalism to people self-identifying, like Margie Taylor Greene, the representative from Georgia, self-identifying um, as Christian nationalist, and the kind of resurgence of that, of claiming that identity in extremist circles in particular, and how that's informed a lot of anti-trans activism, um, a lot of de- you know really unsettling demonstrations forged by some of these extremist groups, but how that all culminated in this really interesting moment um, in the midterm elections where a lot, arguably most of the high profile um, folks who either, uh, you know, affiliated themselves with Christian nationalism or espoused Christian nationalist ideas actually didn't fare very well in the midterms. And I think there's a myriad of different reasons for that. I think Roe is part of it. Um, but, you know, for me, I'm curious about what that looks like moving forward, because the hardline Christian nationalist um, folks aren't going away. Right. Like they, they still believe this. They're not abandoning the ideology. But how what what is their next move, either in extremist circles or in political circles um, when it comes to trying to assessing how to uh-huh. politically organize these groups moving forward? I think it's 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 yeah. a it's a moving um, story in a lot of ways where it's hard to pin down exactly what it's going to look like this time yeah. next year. I mean, I think that I, from my perspective, it was, you know, the the recognition of the Christian nationalism as a potent force. And so, you know, Interfaith Alliance held a hearing about Christian nationalism on the Hill. Uh, and that, I think, in itself recognized that, okay, this is not like some sort of, you know, fantasy out there a little bit like, you know, made up thing, but actually an organizing principle that is antithetical to what we're what we believe is, um, you know, what what many of us feel is a a religiously pluralistic and, and diverse America. How did you understand the Christian nationalism um, story, Adele? What was did did you report on that at all? I left much of that for RNS and Jack's able hands. Um, but I do think that I just find that like personally, you know, when people know who, what I do for a living, that they're asking, you know, well, what do we do now? What do we do about this? So I think that's uh, a really important role for journalists to play, our news organization and others to just help people understand. And Jack could explain this better than me, but, you know, there's just confusion about what does it really mean, you know? Can you right. have a flag in your church? Is that a problem now? Or is that still okay? I mean, I think there are so many questions that we still have to answer. Um, but I think it's really interesting to see the range of people um, starting to pay attention to it. Like you said, your organization having a hearing, I think it was um, a year ago in the fall, the National Council of Churches had a session that related to this topic. Um, yeah. It's just, I think there's a broad sweep of of um, religious America that's saying, okay, we need to address this issue, right. understand, it, speak to it, push back to it, join it, whatever, whatever their stance is. Um, I think that we're going to have to keep reporting on it and help people understand. Right. right. I think a Baptist joint committee is doing something uh, related with the Christians against Christian nationalism. There's a, there's quite a few groups. And I think it is, you know, it, it's often goes interchangeably with white Christian nationalism and, and the racially identified uh, movement that is uh, that often um, has has undertones of this, you know, kind of um, deep, uh, you know, abiding and enduring, unfortunately, racist history of the country. And so I think that there's, you know, there's a through line. This is not a recent thing. This is like a new manifestation. You can look to far back and then the 20s with the Ku Klux Klan. And, you know, I mean, this is there, there is a through line of this that uses similar similar symbols that blend a kind of nationalist identity with a with a um, a, a racist agenda that excludes also Jews and Catholics and other you know I mean I think this one is it's interesting to see how this is manifesting itself but it, it's certainly a, a really really important story to watch what what are some other um, what are some other stories that you reported on this year that um, 
that were really interesting that that um kind of expanded the the understanding of religion in America perhaps um the Southern Baptist Convention is can not not be mentioned that I covered it that their big meeting this year with my colleague Bob Smetana. And there's just been so much going on with that group, um, most especially around the issue of sexual abuse, which is also a challenge for a lot of other denominations. But after covering this group for a long time, including when they said, oh, we can't have a database of people who we consider, you know, um, uh, justifiably accused of uh, sexual abuse to now saying at their most recent meeting, we're going to work on having just that kind of thing. Uh, so it shows what a sea change there has been for that denomination. And I think a lot of it has to do with ground up activism, most especially from the survivors of abuse who were apologized to and who were given a a prominent seat in the convention hall this time around. Totally seeing a change there as to who's getting listened to, who's having a, a chance to have their um, side heard. Um, so it'll be interesting in the coming years to see what difference the things they say they're going to do will, you know, what they will affect. But um, that was just really a big one, especially having covered this group for so, so long. Yeah. And also, uh, you know, the largest, I, th- I think you can say the largest denomination of any type in America, is that right? Protestant. I mean, Protestant. Oh, it's, is the Catholic Church larger yeah. than the Southern Catholic Baptist Convention? Them as a okay, yeah. Um, but it is like a very, you know, it's a very a, a large chunk of um, American religiosity that has really been, you know, I think it, this has been an aspect of their kind of, you know, of of, of uh, tension within that denomination. Also, I think you know the degree to which there's an embrace of Trumpism or not. I mean, there's been some prominent people who feel like they've been a little bit kicked out of the denomination and and uh, defections. Russell Moore, probably the most prominent of those, but that is it is a big story because it's like it is like a slice of American religion uh, that that is um, you know. Hopefully, reckoning with something that they really were almost unbelievably toned up around for uh, for several years. So it's yeah. And I sh- I should add, it seems to me that um, part of what drove the sea change this year was an independent report that had them look at themselves and see yeah. over pages and pages and pages of uh, just examples of mistreatment of uh, uh, abuse victims who were seeking abuse survivors who were seeking uh, to be treated well by the denomination and weren't and just, you know, mishandling the allegations. So there was also an independent voice that said here, like almost held up a mirror to the Southern Baptist and said, this is what's really going on. You need to deal with it. And now right. they apparently are trying to. Uh-huh. Yeah. Great. Jack, what, what else comes to mind as we think about the last uh, last 12 months? Um, two things come to mind. The first is just kind of the religious dynamics surrounding Russia's invasion of Ukraine, right? There was um, a series of stories um, documenting how Patriarch Kirill, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, kind of laid the spiritual groundwork for the invasion, kind of this idea of a Russian world that, of which you know Ukraine was part of Russia's spiritual space. These are kinds of things that actually Putin himself has given lip service to as well. And the, the subsequent um, pushback against the Russian Orthodox Church, both within the Russian Orthodox Church, we actually had some priests who've kind of stood up um, against the leadership there, both in Ukraine and even in Russia, but also pushback in some global entities. There was a whole debate about this at the World Council of Churches about like what the appropriate response to be would be um, to Russia. And then the World Council of Churches ultimate kind of issuing of a statement. Some people thought that was adequate. A lot of people thought that was inadequate. So how this is kind of animated global politics, not only around Russia as a state actor, but the Russian Orthodox Church as a religious actor um, around the world. And this, of course, invites conversations about, you know, extreme versions of Christian nationalism, of which many argue this is an aspect. Yeah, that is so interesting. I'm I'm glad you brought that up. And, you know, uh, as we're taping this, uh, President Zelensky is arriving in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that like it adds a complexity because he's Jewish. 
Uh, and and the, the accusation are that he's part of the Nazification of, of the Ukraine, which is right. always kind of a little bit hard to wrap my mind around. But but I do think that what, you know, like the head of the uh, Russian Orthodox Church is, has even gone as far as like, if you die in battle, you're, you know, guaranteeing eternal life or things like that. It's just a really <laughs> like, it's such a strong um, example of the role that religion can play in these kind of hyper-nationalist movements and um, religion almost employed uh, to the, you know, the aims of the state and um, including uh, international policy. I mean, it's really uh, policy, if you want to call it that, um, you know, but it's really, that is a really interesting reminder. Um, and if, you know, if you, if you think of the Russian Orthodox Church, if you think of other examples of uh, kind of, I will say like, uh, ethno-religion nationalism. I don't know if that's like that's probably not the precise term, but you see it around the the globe in different areas, and and it is like it's a real it's a real force. And I think Christian nationalism is is kind of our homegrown version of that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, there are other places where it's more uniform. You you mentioned two. What was the right. second one that you had in mind? Well, the other one, um, and I, I, I would only begin this conversation and actually pitch it back to Adele, who I think has done more reporting on this than anyone else. Um, you know, Reverend Senator uh, Warnock's, I guess, fifth election, fourth or fifth, depending on how you count it, in Georgia. Um, I think it's a really interesting moment for American politics because um, he is and has been, while in, while in the Senate, you know, uh, both a U.S. senator and an active pastor of prestigious um, historically black church where Martin Luther King um, once preached and led. And I think, you know, it's, it has been interesting to watch the reactions among some prominent liberal voices saying, oh, you know, like literally on election night after he gave his victory speech, um, you had MSNBC commentators saying maybe we should, um, we, them speaking for liberals and Democrats, should elect more uh, uh, Baptist ministers as um, um, <laughs> at, for to, to the U.S. Senate. The idea being that, you know, this is this is a powerful force, particularly in the South. But I mean, I'd have pitched to Adele here because, you know, his religious story here and you know, operating in the South has actually been been going on for a while. Right, Adele? Yeah. And also the people who have uh, long worked in black churches for mobilizing the vote that just has continued. And Jack and I are both wondering about what will happen next. But I've written stories ahead of the most recent elections where they're just every time you talk to African-American leaders, they talk about how they're networks are expanding, how they're working with different people um, and broadly trying to get more people to vote, especially since there have been so many restrictions against the vote. And of course, Warnock has talked over and over again about how the vote is sacred. And he uses this language over and over again that resonates with some people and may be helping them get to the polls. So it will be interesting now that he's in place for a bit to see what else he's going to do as he is both a, a, a preacher and a politician. You know, I, I was at Union Seminary with him. We got our MDivs the oh, same wow. year, and he went on to get a PhD. And um, and I, you know, I will say that there were there was no mistaking the destiny that was around him. I mean, he was a very very powerful figure. He's working at Abyssinian Church. There was a real seriousness that he came to um, Union with. And uh, and has been serious ever since. And he, you know, he's a he has a a powerful personal story. He um, and he also is just, you know, he's one of those people who's who's. Uh, I will I will put Reverend Barber in this too. That you know, there he's not going to throw anybody under the bus. He really is about bringing people along. I think he has a genuine heart for it. Um, that election, I will say, was. Again, a really interesting kind of test of religion. I mean, we, you know, you mentioned the story, mm-hmm. but like the, you know, the the Herschel Walker faction that really had religious backing. I mean, huge. You know, I mean, it. it I think it was more kind of the white uh, evangelical, um, largely. I won't say like completely, yeah. but a, a lot of that moved their weight behind him. The first event that Herschel Walker held after the allegations that he paid for an abortion um, came to light, after those were published, the next morning was him holding an event 
with um, evangelical clergy at a church the next morning. That was the first place he went after that dropped, which I think said a lot about how important right. the constituency was to his Right, success. right. So you had this, like, you, again, you know, in the importance of religion in election that was just, like, condensed. And then you're in Georgia. But, you know, like, it's like you have, on the one hand, you have this person who perfectly, not perfectly, but no one does it perfectly, but, like, who really embodied the spirit of king. You know, he's at the pulpit of King. He's using language that King used, you know, the, the John Lewis and all of this. And then the other side, you had like this this white evangel. I mean, sorry to name it, but white evangelical tradition that often was in opposition to King himself and uh, and is part of this like anti-CRT movement and all this kind of stuff. And so you, I just thought that was like, and that it was so close, which shows how divided our country is like. I, anyway, I'm not going to I'm not going to go on. <laughs> that is a really <laughs> uh, Jack and I were discussing uh, the day after this decision, uh, the, the two speeches, the concession mm-hmm. speech by Walker and the uh, winning speech by Warnock and how much not only was there religion in what they said, but they both had amen corners. And yep. it was just very interesting yep. to see how much faith and belief uh, were in those rooms and of course beyond them too. Amazing. Amazing. And that's, uh, I, that is really powerful. Um, I, I, I'm going to bring up, you know, something that obviously is, uh, you know, something that just happened that near and dear to my heart, which is the respect for marriage act. Yeah. And I, I do think that there was, you know, it wasn't primarily a religion story, but, for Interfaith Alliance, at least, it was really, really an important moment uh, for us to rally religious voices um, to make sure that they were heard in support of it. That actually represented the majority of religious traditions in America. I, in this way, you can almost say overwhelming, something like 70 percent. Um, and and that was like, you know, it was uh, again, it was almost a litmus test on but but a surprising one. I don't know if you all were surprised. I, I'm wondering if you just when the LDS Church made its statement in support of the bill, I thought that represented a huge sea change for how the LDS Church was going to show up in in the kind of culture war questions. You know, and and even the National Association of Evangelicals showed up in support. And so it was interesting to see how that. Um, I'm wondering if either of you, uh, I, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not remembering immediately if those were, that was part of either of your beats, but it was, it was a really important, um, I think an important religion story for this last year. I think it was a really interesting, it's not quite temporarily this true, but kind of a bookends of like this triumphant religious right victory in the overturning of Roe, right? Like this was one of the issues that they had campaigned on for, for decades as a, as a core feature. One of the other things that they have long campaigned on is generally opposition to LGBTQ rights, but also particular for years there, opposition to same-sex marriage. And the achievement of that goal at the Supreme Court of, you know, um, overturning Roe v. Wade, while also not only losing the, um, the fight over same-sex marriage in Congress, but losing it with the support of religious actors, right? Um, like a conservative religious actors like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, I think, you know, in some ways that kind of speaks to kind of the trajectory of the um both those issues although to your point earlier there's actually like widespread religious support for abortion rights in some ways like a supreme court decision was not in step with um popular opinion and many religious opinions on that but that having been said i really thought it was an interesting thing to observe particularly if you go back one of my colleagues um wrote a story about this i think it was bob um kind of tracing how you can kind of go back to the utah compromise um in the wake of prop eight where um, you know, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints tried to, you know, kind of uh, establish this way of, of, of equating a compromise, um, as it was put, and how that played a role in the forging of this document, this go-round. And again, I think that that says a lot um, to what you were saying earlier about the complicated nature of how these issues have developed over the last two or three decades. I don't know if you had anything else to yeah. add there, Adele. I would just say that this issue of nuance is really important and understanding that there are assumptions about what different groups believe, where they stand on some issues, and 
when it comes to the issue of LGBTQ rights, there certainly has been a shift over time and actually a quicker time than on some social issues. And this is an example of that, that people were like shocked that the LDS church made this move. But as uh, Jack mentioned with Boston Hannah's coverage, it has shown that there has been, you know, uh, sort of a, an up and up and up level of, okay, we'll take this step and, and this step and then this step. So um, I just think it's a clear example of how people may not understand the groups that they think they do, including the National Association of Evangelicals, which you just mentioned. Um, yeah. So well, I think and, that and, it makes people step back a little bit and say, oh, wait, maybe I need to understand these folks more than I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, to be clear, they didn't say they supported it. <laughs> right. They said they supported the right for other people to do it, right? But not inflicted upon them. Them, you know. But and, that's still, but that's no, still, no. I'm not saying that's not nothing. That's right. not nothing that's at all. Nothing. I mean, it's like super important. I mean, that's really nuance. You know, I mean, it's like exactly like that's the nuance of what they're they're trying to thread a needle, which I totally appreciate. It's like you know, I mean, as someone you know who's who's gay married, um, but uh, you know who like. But I read that. I was like, that's fine. You don't have to believe in it. But if you allow me and my partner to express our like our commitment and our faith, then then we're we're cool, you know, and and this is this is, I think, really, you know, it, it does in part go back to the, the Dobbs decision, though. Because part of the reason, the impetus for this was the sense right. of the vulnerability of the decision, the Oberfeld, uh, that it could be overturned. Um, and so th- the need for Congress to act was – that was mentioned on the South Lawn as a, as a clarion call for why there was needed to be action. So super interesting. Um, what are stories that may not be the biggest stories, but maybe – you wish more people paid attention to like these could be these could be stories that you that might have been small stories but for you really signified something interesting happening in our the fabric the religious fabric of our country i'm i'm curious if anything comes to mind that really um you know, it, it, it's it's maybe it may be in the corner now but it, it just is, it's a really important like important thing that that maybe our listeners didn't quite catch uh just a quick one um you know katanji brown jackson um now justice um jackson uh her being placed on the court as this interesting nuanced thing of being the first i think openly self-iding or the only self-iding protestant on the court right it's we, we kind of have this like back and forth around Gorsuch, uh, who it's actually like he was raised Catholic, but he attended an Episcopal church. But we don't actually know how he self IDs these days. So he always has like a weird asterisk next to his name. Um, but that there's this there's this dynamic on the court where it's um, primarily Catholics and um, Jewish justices. And so having her on there and self IDing as, as much during the hearings on her uh, appointment as I believe it was um, Senator Graham, Lindsey Graham, who was like grilling her on her faith and the controversy around even that is like retaliation of framing it as retaliation for the um, supposed grilling um, of conservative um, justices that preceded her on their faith. Um, you know, there's like this interesting, like legal faith conversation um, that you know, pe- people have looked into. You know, the, the part of the reason the Catholic um, justices end up in the Supreme Court, this established Catholic legal tradition, and all the things that surround that. Um, conversely, you know, we had these stories about the um, uh, some uh, evangelical and conservative Christian groups that apparently have been praying with justices that may have known decisions, may or may not have known decisions before they came down, and that dynamic in the court. I think there's these like an interesting like uh, menagerie of of stories surrounding the Supreme Court and faith this year. That I think it's actually you know part of the. I, I think I defer to my. Um, friends in the legal reporting field on this one. But I think one of the difficult dynamics of covering the Supreme Court is that it's often kind of a locked box and a lot of pontification. Um, But this year seemed to spill out a whole lot of interesting information, whether it was Supreme Court decisions on Roe or whether or not um, these justices were having meetings with these conservative religious leaders or even the personal faith of justices in a way that I haven't seen in the past in in years um, past surrounding. Uh, Just a note on that. Rob Shank, it was the person who uh, Justice Alito was praying with. And uh, he, he broke that story on this show. 
Yeah. Uh, uh, it was on this show that he was talking to my predecessor, Rabbi Jack Moline, about that. And then that kind of information spread in the end that when the New York Times and, and others were reporting on it, it first broke here as like, you know, something that came up in conversation. Uh, so, so yeah. state of belief for the win again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Adele, what what are what is what was something that you looked at this year that you thought was really um under the radar but really important? Well, it's not so much it was under the radar because it was still with us, but I feel like a lot of people have liked to use the phrase post pandemic and we, you know, really aren't post pandemic. And I continue to be interested in all kinds of ways this is affecting Congregations. There's a big study being done by the Hartford Institute for Religion Research, and it's looking at what this means for the future of religion, for the future of congregations. And it means a lot. And I mean, even in the last month or two, I know of churches that are still having people wear masks or still having people be careful of how many could come in, or maybe they just might have changed that. Um, it is with us. And it its effects are going to be with us for a very long time as far as how it has changed the dynamics of congregations, including religious education, which is something I'm writing about right now. So um, I feel like it wasn't completely under the radar. I mean, it was a big story in 2020, but I think it's going to have continuing effects has this year and will next year as well. You know, that makes me think of another story that may not have been a story this year, but certainly is a legacy of the 2020 time, which is vaccinations and religion. Mm. Because what we're seeing is actually the decrease of all vaccinations now. Now, there's a suspicion somehow of all vaccinations, including ones that were long established. People are less likely. And this is, this is, you know, this is, I don't even know where it's emanating from. I mean, I, I kind of understood it. It was such a political issue during the, um, the first, we can call it the first stages of the pandemic now. Uh, uh, but, you know, I don't, I don't know where that goes. I, you know, when I was at Interfaith America, working with Ibu Patel and others, we were really trying to get people to have conversations about getting vaccinated because we thought it was a religious issue. I still do, but the resistance to it is also framed as a religious issue and sometimes as a religious freedom issue. And so I, yeah. I think that that's, that's a really, it's, you know, I, I live in New York City where um, our mayor just said it's time to mask up again. I just think there's so little appetite for it. Uh, you know, it's just going to be, it, it is ongoing. You're absolutely right. And how that affects com congregations, you know, I mean, it's just, it's fascinating because last year at this time, they canceled my, <laughs> I told you, my, my kids are in the Christmas pageant. People, I, I have a pig and a shepherd in the Christmas pageant, and last year they canceled it right before it was supposed to happen. And you know, who knows if it will happen this year? But you know, anyway, we'll uh, stay tuned on that. But hopefully, the pig and the shepherd will be able to, you know, have a have their debut on the church stage. I, I'm curious as we as we begin to um, wrap up, if there's um, were there any stories that if you had had more time. Or more access, or like, was there anybody who you were like, "Ooh, I want to, I want to interview them so bad." Like, what's your wish list for uh, for go, looking back? But then we can also like, we'll all send you good vibes so that it comes true in the in the in the coming year. But what were what were what were the some of the people who you would have loved to have talked to about religion this past year? the vice president and her husband and their <laughs> interfaith relationship is something that will always intrigue me. That Whether is that a good happens, one. Yeah. You know, but I, I you know, I've covered some things with the second gentleman and, um, but you know, it's been from a distance, you know, uh, and so. You know what? Okay. Vice president Harris and uh, second gentleman, uh, Einhoff, this is your chance. None other than the Adele Banks is saying that she'd like to interview you. Her so so. Listen up. Uh, this is a no. I agree. That is they. I don't know why they haven't done it like a sit down. They should do a sit down with you, and really get into it. I mean, they've done a lot. I mean, they haven't been shy about their 
their faith. I mean, it's one of the most interesting. I actually thank you for bringing that up. I think that couple is one of the most interesting. It kind of a microcosm of American religiosity, just like right there. I mean, they're so interesting. And and I wish they would have a have a really serious conversation about religion. Um, I think Jack and I could have a great conversation with them, but we will see. Since you asked, that was the answer. <laughs> no, it's going to happen. I feel like this it, it, state of belief breaks things all the time. This is going to happen. I feel really good about it. All right, Jack. Who, what is oh, yeah. your like? What is your uh, wish list or? Well, you know, as long as we're speaking to the White House, if 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 Joe Biden's available, I will well, you'll tack him on to the end of that. Wow. <laughs> OK. And I mean, okay. you know, I think especially given, you know, all of the controversy last year that surrounded, um, you know, abortion and his his status as a Catholic. Right. Where you had the bishops really kind of feuding over that um and and, and i mean and it, it, you know it, it, it got all the way to the vatican and then there was this kind of de facto um uh you know it's a, not necessarily show of support but show of kind of like the status quo when he went and visited pope francis and according to biden the pope told him that you know he was you know continue being a good catholic he can continue to take communion um and well he know, did meantime, he did take communion didn't he or yes, i mean he what did. It, um, it, at the Vatican, so like that, and, which and he is did another. It, the, the Bishop of Rome, which is the Pope, you know, he if, if he takes um, you know communion in that space, that is underneath the purview of the Pope. And so, in, in meanwhile, um, you know, we've had multiple different uh, bishops here in the United States um, ban both uh, either indicate that they would want they they would probably refuse the president from taking communion which for the re- record has happened to him once in south carolina people forget about this during the campaign he was denied communion reportedly uh-huh. in south carolina uh-huh. um which you know to our, my knowledge didn't actually happen to john Kerry, although there was a lot of threat of it when he ran in 2004 it actually happened to biden um and i'm curious like you know what that what that feels like for him as a catholic and meanwhile the other person on this same trajectory that i definitely want to want to interview um, is you know now um, outgoing speaker Nancy Pelosi um, because she talks about her faith so often on the stump right. and it often doesn't get a whole lot of coverage. I mean, you know, the, the new footage of her on January sixth begins with her leading her colleagues in prayer over over Zoom when she gave her speech um, as an outgoing, yeah, saying I'm not going to seek the speakership again. Um, that speech was filled with scripture. She talked about Imago Dei. She invoked Saint Francis, and that. You know, if you read the, the 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 accounts of that speech, a lot of that religious language was how she framed entire sections of the speech was actually left out, um, and so like, it just didn't rise the level of coverage. So I just I, I would like to kind of talk to her as someone who's leaving that position, um, as you know how her faith has inspired her political service and what have you. And there are you know any number. I would love to speak to the incoming Republican leadership as well, given they're wrangling with these claims from people like Rep- Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has said that the party should be the party of Christian nationalism, how they intend to kind of, you know, assess that moving forward as a political dynamic in their caucus and party. Um, so that's yeah. just a, a smattering of you. And no, those are so. Wish list, I'll just add one more, which is. Yeah. Dealing with all these different branches of government, it would be wonderful to have the opportunity to interview Justice Katandi Brown Jackson. Yes. I did yeah, get yeah. to write Ooh. about her and dug into some of what she said about faith, but I'd love to hear what she has to say about Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, this well. is so well, interesting. Okay. I mean, I do want to like just stop and recognize like the fact that um, that the the Catholicism of both uh, um, Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi is such a not even a tertiary. It's barely makes the top ten of anything everybody and it ever talks about. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the reasons that we think about like the Republicans are the, the party of faith. And then there's the Democrats that are the godless like commies. And I, I do think that it's it's much more complicated than that and much you know, it's much more nuanced and, and I I I think that we need we need more people reading RNS <laughs> Religion News Service and these two excellent uh excellent reporters. Last question. Predictions for 2023. This is an opportunity for you to make predictions for 2023, and then in a year from now, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you about your predictions, and and that will be the gotcha moment. But for now, 
What do you think? What do you think will be some of the biggest stories of 2023? Huh. Well, I'll I'll begin a stream of consciousness answer. Um, I mean, I think one of the subtexts is going to inform a lot of this is that some campaigns are going to begin by the end of this year, right? Um, some presidential campaigns, and um, that's that might dictate a lot of this, right? So if um, you know Ron DeSantis um, jumps in to run. You know, he the the big ad right before Election Day, this go round that he put out there was actually aimed directly at at fates. It was like this God um, chose a fighter um, um, or God made a fighter. Him being this 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 fighter character, you know, for religious values. I think that's going to inform a lot of, you know, if he if he stays on that track, particularly as there's some seems to be some wrangling over um, the religious supporters that previously, you know, lined up behind Trump. You know, that dynamic between the Trump um, DeSantis, you know, theoretical face off, I think, will involve a lot of religious dynamics, particularly given that we've seen some of um, Trump's longstanding religious advisors actually seem to kind of opt out of the primary fight. Um, You know, with Robert Jeffress, the Texas pastor who was one of Trump's most stalwart supporters, literally preached a sermon to him on Inauguration Day saying that he, you know, he'll he'll support Trump if he wins the nomination. Right. And um, so I think there's going to be a really interesting, like, either reorganization or infighting among kind of classical, um, classic uh, religious right figures, as well as this new school of religious figures who kind of, you know, were prominent in, in Trumpism as they try to figure out who they might want to back um, um, in this upcoming presidential election. That's the, the first one I would throw out there. Uh, I just think that there will be some more changes within both the denominational uh, sphere and the non-denominational sphere. We've had an article recently by my colleague, Nachim Rohn, I believe, uh, about how non-denominational churches are becoming the most, you know, one of the highest, I think it was after one or two of the most major groups, non-denominational churches are, there are more of them than anything, and then a lot of different churches of different denominations. And I think that's going to change things. And it's going to be interesting to see. It's going to make reporting harder because you're going to have to not say, well, this Catholic church or the Southern Baptist church and try to understand what this non-denominational church is about that you're writing about. Um, And then also on the denominational side, it's like, what is the Southern Baptist Convention really going to do with abuse and with uh, race and with other issues that they've said they care about? What is there going to actually be a there there in 2023? Likewise, with the United Methodist Church, with churches that are leaving, churches that are splitting off, churches that are staying. Uh, I just think I can't predict exactly what's going to happen on any of those three realms, but I know that we'll be writing about them. I think, you know, I, I, I do think that there's so much flux in American religiosity. And, um, you know, I, it'll be fascinating to see if there's any change in the trajectory of like declining religiosity or attendance or you know i mean and um i i what what will it mean for kind of christian nationalism as well as progressive christian circles like when when the salience of like these organizations becomes more and more um representative of a minority of the country uh you know and um it, it is uh you know the ongoing um, transformation of our country and how we're prepared to deal with that transformation, you know, how we think of ourselves as a truly like that no one represents the thing. And that I think Christian nationalism is trying to step into that space. And my sense is that Christian nationalism is going to get crystallized into something very it may be a little bit smaller. People will not identify. I think a lot of people are like, well, you know, do I think we should pray in school? Maybe, but they're not behind like kind of a kind of the political movement of Mm -hmm. Christian nationalism. I think it's going to start to get more and more. I think you're going to see more self-identification as Christian nationalism. And I think you're going to see more and more people are going to demand like, where do you stand on that? And it will be so interesting to see what Trump or DeSantis says. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm a Christian. If, If DeSantis Given that ad that you mentioned, if he says, I represent Christian nationalism, what will that mean for our country and, you know, and the potential of him being able to win an election or not win an election with that identification? So 
So much more to think, um, but I am uh, I'm I, I am sorry that we're at time. Uh, Adele Banks has been with Religion News Service since 1995, an award-winning journalist. Adele is uh, production editor and national reporter at RNS. Jack Jenkins is author of American Products, The Religious Roots of Progressive Politics and the Ongoing Fight for Soul of the Country, and has been and has been an RNS national reporter for over a decade. Thank you both for your expertise, your insights, and all of your brilliance. I'm so grateful for both of you. And just, I enjoy your writing so much. It's so smooth. It's so insightful. It's vivid. And so everybody, please check out Adele Banks, Jack Jenkins, Religion News Service. We're so glad that you joined us on State of Belief. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for having us. The Reverend Tracy Blackman is Associate General Minister for Justice and Local Church Ministries for the United Church of Christ. I wonder if if you might just share some kind of blessing or um, message of hope for our listeners, if you wouldn't mind closing us out with that. Well, sure. Um, My hope for all of us in this season of Advent, this blessed season of Advent and Christmas is that the wonder and the miraculous nature of the birth of the Christ child will be with us in ways that we continue to trust and follow the light and believe that there is goodness ahead. Our best days are not behind us. Our best days are in front of us. Um, I believe that. And my hope in that is watching um, the birth and the journey to the birth of the Christ child. So blessings to you, Paul. And with that, I'm afraid that's all the time we've got for this week's show. We need your help keeping State of Belief Radio on the air. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like this are heard by sharing this program with friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the weekly State of Belief podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. We'll be celebrating New Year's Day with author and Jesuit spiritual teacher, Father Jim Martin, best-selling author and meditation teacher, Buddhist Sharon Salzberg, and former Harvard University humanist chaplain and writer, Chris Stedman. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch, and this is State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going on.